Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at anchor.fm slash allingospel or visit the allingospel.com website. Open up your Bibles to number seven is where we'll be. And I we are going to probably knock off another two chapters tonight. Um, because if you've looked at number seven, there's some repetition in this chapter, just a little bit. And I think the way I want to handle it is this will be the first time where I don't read every word, but I'm going to read the words that are identical and I'm just going to say times 12. So I'll cover all those parts. So I'll have read them, but I'm just going to read them once. Does that make sense? All right. Uh, we'll go through that sort of thing. And I just, it, it's so exciting. Like when you go into chapters that I think are really, when you're reading them in your own Bible study, these are what I would call the tedious chapters because they're just a discipline to read through them. Um, but it is, again, it's the glory of kings to find God's truth and to look at what God's doing here and how he, he shares his word. So we'll start off number seven. Now it came to pass when Moses had finished setting up the tabernacle that he anointed it and consecrated it and all its furnishings and the altar and all its utensils, so he anointed them and consecrated them. Then the leaders of Israel and the heads of their fathers' houses, who were the leaders of the tribes over those who were numbered, made an offering. And they brought their offering before the Lord, six covered carts and twelve oxen, a cart for every two of the leaders, and for each one an ox, and they presented them before the tabernacle. So these oxen are not for sacrifice. These are to help haul all the stuff because they don't have their own holdings. So when Moses finished up setting up the tabernacle in verse 1, clearly this is not in chronological order, because he finished setting up the tabernacle, if you remember, way, way, way back. Um, so we, we would go back almost a year of our Bible study to when he set it up. So it's not in chronological order. However, it's also not a mistake. This is the order that they had in the earliest text that we can find of the book of Numbers. So you have to start asking, what is Moses trying to do by putting it in the order that he put it in? And what's, what's being said here? And it goes back to, I think, that there's, this is also a book that shows God's spiritual organization of the nation. And what comes first for, for in that process is different. So I'm going to go back through Numbers 1 through 6 real quick again. Are you ready, Paul? Okay. In Numbers 1, God counted the people and he organized the people. In Numbers 2, he, or, I'm sorry, in Numbers 1, God counts the people and he numbers the people, or and he names the people. Remember, he gave new names to each of the tribes. And then in Numbers 2, he organizes them and tells them where they're going to march and what they're going to do. And when he counted them, when he named them, when he organized them, remember, he organized them in the shape of a cross. Numbers 3 and 4, he in detail gives jobs and roles for each of the people to do. So he gives them some work, and a lot of that work is menial grunt work that they're supposed to be doing. But he gets them to work. And then in Numbers 5, he commands them to clean up. Get the defilement out of your camp, 
the visible stuff like leprosy, the invisible stuff like jealousy. Let's deal with it. Let's get it taken care of. And he basically cleans them up in Numbers 5. Then in number 6, he shows the way to make a Nazarite vow. And there's this beautiful blessing at the end of the chapter. So think of the order of these things when it comes to preparing for the wilderness or starting a life of faith when it comes to action and what you're going to do. There's this clear ordering of what's going to happen and what they're going to do there. And now we see Israel reacting to the blessing from number six. And the proper reaction to being blessed by God is to come and give offerings and to bring what you have back to the Levite priesthood or back to the church. So spiritually, these things are in order, even if they're not in chronological order, right? So the six carts, um, I, a small note here is that they are a luxury at this period of history. And coming out of Egypt, the people that had these carts would have had fresh in their memory how easy they made travel. So for each tribe to give up these carts to the Levites would have been a huge, extremely valuable gift. Um, in addition to the, the oxen and the, the other pieces that come in verse 3. So they prep for travel. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Accept these from them, that they may be used in doing the work of the tabernacle of meeting, and you shall give them to the Levites, every man according to his service. So Moses took the carts and the, uh, and the oxen and gave them to the Levites. Two carts and four oxen he gave to the sons of Gershon according to their service. And four carts and eight oxen he gave to the sons of Merari, and according to their service, and under the authority of Ithamar, the son of Aaron, the priest. But to the sons of Kohath he gave nothing, because theirs was the service of the holy things which they carried on their shoulder. So again, this is not fair how Moses treats these three uh, Levitical tribes. The oxen here are for labor, and it's important to remember that. And a quick refresher. Um, that the Gershonites were the fabrics and leathers people. Added up, they wouldn't have weighed as much as what the Marites would have had to carry. The Marites had to carry the pillars and the boards and the framework and the silver and the gold. Much heavier, much larger amounts. Uh, the Kohathites were not supposed to put any of God's implements on a cart. They were supposed to do it with those poles that they put through the pieces. So to put them on a cart would be a temptation but they're not supposed to do that. So to help them stay away from that temptation, Mo Moses gets them no carts. Um, however, in 2 Samuel 6, remember when David's moving the ark, he uses a cart to move it and people die. So it's not a good situation and, and, and Moses is doing the Kohathites a favor here. I like the idea that he gives these tribes the work first and it may look overwhelming to the, to the Levites that they got to carry all this tabernacle stuff on their shoulders. And remember that I really emphasized that when we hit that. But seemingly before they actually have to pick it up and do it, God provides a means to do it to make it a lot easier than it was. Spiritually speaking, I think that's kind of a cool thing. Sometimes God gives you the chore and waits for you to say yes, amen, before he gives you the ways to get through that chore and make it easy. But God provides and he never provides or tempts people beyond what they're able to do. First uh, Corinthians 10. So he gives them what they need to carry these things, but he gave them the chore a couple chapters ago. Now the leaders, verse 10, offered the dedication offering for the altar when it was anointed. So the leaders offered their offering before the altar. For the Lord said to Moses, they shall offer their offering one liter each day for the dedication of the altar. So they're going to spread this thing out over 12 days. This is a big event, a holiday, you might even say. 
The word dedication in verse 11 is a word you all know. It's called Hanukkah. So the word dedication, Hanukkah, is what they're doing here. This is not the origins of what we call Hanukkah today, but it could be. Um, it would be appropriate. Uh, so in Levi, in uh, Leviticus 8, we had a spiritual dedication of the priesthood, um, but now it looks like the tribal leaders or the tribes are dedicating themselves formally too. Make, make sense? So different groups of people. Um, it's purposeful in how they do it. It's a serious event. God's being intentional with this, um, and he does it in order. So again, God's not a God of confusion. This is going to be an orderly event. So on, in verse 12, we hit the first day. The one who offered his offering on the first day was Nishan, the son of Amminadab, from the tribe of Judah. So J Judah's the first when they go marching through the wilderness. They will be the first in, in this dedication too. Um, and Judah will lead the way. Um, and the, for the rest of this, this is the same order that they did the census in otherwise. So as we go through these, the order is the order of the tribes is, is kind of the same here. All right, here's the offering, and this is what I'm going to multiply times 12. His offering was one silver platter, the weight of which was 130 shekels, and one silver bowl of 70 shekels, according to the shekeluda of the sanctuary, or the shekel of the sanctuary, both of them uh, full of fine flour mixed with oil as a grain offering, one pan of 10 shekels full of incense, one young bull, one ram, one male lamb in its first year as a burnt offering, one kid of the goats as a sin offering, and for the sacrifice of peace offerings, two oxen, five rams, five male goats, and five male lambs in their first year. That will get repeated 12 times, so we're just going to hit copy, and then I'll paste that. Um, this was the offering of Nashon, uh, the son of Amminadab. So one silver plate's about three pounds. These are big, heavy plates. A silver bowl would have been about two pounds. And the gold pan or like dish would have been about four ounces. This is very generous, and this would have still been metals that they took from Egypt. Um, so they have outside of, uh, of this situation the grain offering, the oil. Uh, they have things that would have been for the bread, and they have the, they're supplying for the incense too. The bread, remember, goes on the fellowship table to the right as you walk into the tabernacle, and that incense would have been burning to the left or straight in front. And the oils would have been burning the lamp on the left. So the tribes bring everything and contribute to it. Um, everything here is in accordance with Levi or Leviticus 1. I keep saying Levi because I just have L-E-V. Um, Leviticus 1 through 5 are these various sacrifices. They're doing everything according to what they should be. And I think that's one of the points here is they're not just reading the word of God. They're doing the word of God. They're not just hearing what they're supposed to do and feeling good about that. They're actually doing what they're supposed to do. The burnt offering, as a quick reminder, is an is a image of offering all of yourself to God. So they give their lives, their tribes to, to God. They take it all to the Lord. Um, the goat is a symbolic of a sin offering. Sin offerings are about who you are as a sinner. And trespass offerings are about what you've done that you know of and you have guilt over. So the sin offerings and the trespass offerings. So even sins that they may be ignorant of are covered with a sin offering. So between the burnt offering and the peace offering, you have this kind of uh, system of what's going on. The peace offering is a large one because you're going to feast. So basically the tribe of Judah gets to feast with the Levites. 
on day one. And then on day two, they get the next tribe gets to feast with the Levites. The Levites are going to get 12 days of feasting on all the best food that these tribes can bring and, and provide. So the Levites are going to be fat by the end of this week and a half. Uh, but they need to be. They're going to burn some calories as they carry all this stuff. The idea of giving here is really important. Again, a big picture on this. This is a tribe that just a little while ago came out of Egypt as slaves. And they had a psychological mindset called a slave mentality. So giving to the tribe, giving to the Levitical priesthood is not something that's part of a slave mentality. Generosity is not what slaves do. So when they're doing this, they're God's continuing to train them to be kingdom people that are generous, not slave mentality people that take like they did from the Egyptians, right? So he's continuing to kind of shape what they're, how they're going to think, how they're going to be, and they have this communal feast with the priests before they leave. Verse 18, on the second day, Nathaniel, son of Zoar, leader of Issachar, presented an offering, paste. This is the same offering. They're going to do it 12 days in a row. Each leader from verse 18 is called a prince. Uh, so when it says here, the leader of Issachar, the word for that word leader is prince. Notice if you go back to the, the verse with Judah in it, it does not use that phrase. In fact, every tribe that we're going to get to as we go forward are all going to be called princes except for the tribe of Judah. Tribe of Judah, the prince is not named and the prince will not be named until the prince of peace comes from the tribe of Judah. So a slot is set aside here. I love that stuff. When you're reading through kind of one of these chapters and you go, oh, that's a really interesting point. And you start looking through it and you're seeing it and you're going, oh, that's crazy. So when they say the prince of Issachar and the prince of Gad and the prince of all these different tribes, there's no prince um, when it comes to the tribe of Judah. Um, everybody brings the same thing so I can hit paste. Interesting because the tribes are not the same size. So it's not that they're giving according to how many people they have. They're giving a set amount. And I think we've seen that before with things that are spiritual. So nobody can, can say that they have more of a claim to the priesthood and more of a claim to the tabernacle. So we've done this before where the different people in the, in the nation bring very similar offerings regardless of their wealth or their size. Nobody gets to think that they're better than another tribe when it comes to spiritual things. They have equal investment, equal ability, all are contributing, um, but they do it as one body and one people. This is consistent with the spiritual concept. I'm going to read a section from Romans 12 here if you want to flip there. In Romans 12, we get this idea that Paul pulls from this idea that none of the tribes were more important than the other tribes. That in the body, everyone has some equal weight in these situations. So Romans 12, verse 3, For I say, this is Paul saying this, that through the grace given to me to everyone who is among you, not to think of yourself more highly than you ought to think, but think soberly as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. For as we have many members in one body, but all members do not have the same function. So we, many, we being many, are one, in one body in Christ and individually members of another. Having then gifts different according to the grace that's given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. Or ministry, let's use it in our ministering. Those who teach in teaching, those who exhort in exhortation, he who gives with liberality 
and he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what's evil, cling to what's good. Just that idea that everybody gives what they can give, right? And in God's eyes, that's all the same thing. And there's no real, there's no one of those roles that stands out above another. So Paul's getting that out of an Old Testament that has that concept in it again and again. Verse 24 is the third day with Eliab, the son of Helan, the leader of the children of Zebulun, paste. On the fourth day, verse 30, day Elizur, the son of Shador, leader of the children of Reuben, paste. Verse 36, on the fifth day, Shelumiel, the son of Zerushaddai, leader of the children of Simeon, paste. God notices every one of these gifts. It's redundant, which makes it a long read. But think about the detail God's putting into this right now. Even though they're the exact same gift, and you could just say all three of Travis gave the same thing, the record-keeping of God is this detailed, and if it's a gift to God and God acknowledges and accepts it, he records it. Uh, I'll come back to that, but let me do two more of these. On verse 42, on the sixth day, uh, Eliasaph, the son of Deuel, leader of the children of Gad, did the offering. On verse 48 is the seventh day, Elishama, the son of Midhud, the leader of the children of Ephraim, paced. The scribes, remember when they made new copies of the Old Testament, they had to hand write this out. And I'm thinking of the poor scribes because they're the, like the 15, 16 year old people. And they're thinking, is there any way we could just sum this chapter up? But generation after generation, as they took those decayable pages and had to make new copies for the next generation, they maintained this chapter because it was important to God. It's important to them. God's meticulous. So if God cares this much about silver or gold, silver bowls and gold platters, how much more does he care about you? Because this is just stuff and God doesn't need this stuff, but he's documenting it. God numbers our wanderings. He puts our tears in a bottle. Are they not in your book? Psalm 56, 8. God tracks everything and this is the book of numbers. He's tracking it. Uh, it's not just symbolic of how God's works. It actually is how God works. So as we go through each of these and you're glancing through them with your eyes, because uh, we're just hitting paste verbally, um, think of that idea that God's, this is how God operates. Um, and this is just the book we see. I think it's cool that Bible actually mentions other books where records are kept that are not in our Bible. These books that we'll only see in heaven. I'm going to give you two references for this. If you want to dig into them, you can, but I think these are fascinating. Malachi 3.16, easy to remember. Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another, and the Lord listened and heard them. So when we talk to one another, God's actually listening in on our conversations. That's like the CIA has nothing on God. So a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord and who meditate on his name. If you meditate on God's name and you're fearful of his judgment, God actually remembers you and has a whole book called the Book of Remembrance. It has to be a thick book. Um, but I think that's fascinating. And then we can trust that God keeps good records because of this chapter. Um, and they're even perfect records. So in Revelation 3.5, he who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments. I will not blot out their name from the book of life. Book of life? Where's that book? But I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. 
God actually remembers, he tracks it, he keeps track of every event, everything you do. Now, when you're a kid and you're trying to get away from things, that's scary. That's called the fear of the Lord, right? When you're an adult and you try to get away from things, that should really be scary because you know the depth and the power of God at a deeper level. Um, let's do another one. Verse 54, the eighth day, Gamaliel, the son of Bedahazer, leader of the children of Manasseh, they present an offering. And verse 60 is the ninth day. Uh, Abidan, the son of Gideoni, leader of the children of Benjamin, they present an offering. And on the 10th day, verse 66, uh, Ahiezer, the son of Amishadai, leader of the children of Dan, presented an offering too. All these offerings matter. Every single one, every day, uh, every word we give to God, it matters. He records it. He puts it in the book of life. He puts it in the book of remembrance, um, and he's recording each of these people that are otherwise nameless in the Bible, but they're important in this respect. They represented their tribe to honor God. Matthew verse 12, but I say to you, for every idle word that men speak, they will give account of it on the day of judgment. For by your words, you will be justified. By your words, you will be condemned. Every word coming out of our mouth matters. There shouldn't be one idle word, according to Jesus, in the book of Matthew. Not one. And we have to give account for those things. I'm terrified of that day, because I'll have to account for certain things, unless God actually forgets my sins and they go as far as the east is from the west. If there's a reset point, I never have to explain the things I said when I was 14. Right? And I'm really glad about that. And I'm going to hold to that promise. I'll say, wait a second, there was a promise here that we were going to forget all these things. And Jesus would go, yeah, just kidding, we forgot about those. What things? Just messing with you. Verse 72, I have weird imagination about what that moment will be like. And it changes. That's why we have the Word of God, because it doesn't change. Verse 72, then we have the 11th day. Pajil. Now these guys are coming up to the priest and the priests are like, I don't think I can eat anymore. It's been 10 days of this. Um, but they're like, no, no, you got to eat our stuff. I think each of the tribes then would have been making an extra effort to bring even choicer products to the, to the barbecue. Uh, maybe bring some of their special sauce, some rubs, all that sort of thing. 11th day, paste. On the 12th day is in verse 78. This is our last day. Ahira, the son of Enan, leader of the children of Naphtali, they present their offering and we'll do our last paste. God accepts these offerings. A thousand, multiple thousands of years later, here we are sitting in our living room reading about these offerings because God recorded them. And they're honorable. And for all of eternity, the gifts that are given to God count and they matter. When God recognizes a gift and he accepts a gift, it's kept for all eternity. The same thing's true of you. When you give yourself as a living sacrifice to God, according to Old Testament rules, that's recorded, it's kept in the book of life, and you are remembered, and that is kept through all of eternity. So you then have to be eternal in order for God to remember you for all of eternity. This shows an understanding of God's sacrificial system. It shows that this is embedded in the worldview of what's going on. And it measures life by the standard of the gifts we give to God. When we bow to God's word, God accepts that as a gift. And he ends with a tally of everything. So this is the sum total. I, you don't even have to do the math because God's even done the math for you. This is the book of Numbers. So it's all added up. Verse 84, 
This was the dedication or the offering for the altar from the leaders of Israel. When it was anointed, 12 silver platters, 12 silver bowls, 12 gold pans. And you feel like you're singing that Christmas carol almost. Um, but there's turtle doves will come later. Each silver platter weighed 130 shekels, each bowl 70 shekels, and all the silver vessels weighed 2,400 shekels altogether, according to the shekel of the sanctuary. Twelve gold pans full of incense weighed 10 shekels apiece, according to the shekel of the sanctuary. All the gold pans weighed 120 shekels. All the oxen for the burnt offering were 12 young bulls, and the rams 12, and the male lambs in their first year 12, with their grain offering, and the kids of the goats as a sin offering, and all the oxen for the sacrifice of peace offerings were 24 bulls. This would feed hundreds, if not thousands of people. The rams, 60. The male goats, 60. The lambs in their first year, 60 lambs. This was the dedication for the, al for the altar after it was anointed. So that's 60 pounds of silver, three full pounds of gold, 240 total animals. Um, still... It's not about the stuff. God doesn't need the stuff. What he needs is a people that are generous and they're willing to give. So they paid homage to God. God gives them a way to do it. I love that God prescribes and tells us what he wants from us. Imagine, compare that to other pantheons of gods where you have no idea what the God wants from you. So they'll give offerings to Odin and they'll just start killing their children or something because they don't know what Odin wants or Saturn wants or... Um, all these other gods. Nobody really knows what they want. So you just keep giving them things until the weather changes. Um, and that's false religion. But in a real religion, when you're actually talking to a real God, God actually tells you what he wants from you and what would be reasonable from you. So we give what we're asked. In our case, then, I, I'm thinking, okay, what, is, what in fact does God ask of us? And what does that look like? So quick Bible survey on that. Leviticus 27:32. we've already covered this. Concerning the tithe of the herd of the flock, even whatsoever passes under the rod, a tenth shall be holy unto the Lord. When you have new cattle in your finances, when new money shows up in your account, a tenth of that is what God wants. Uh, and that that new prosperity is something God's bringing into your life. So when you get a new paycheck and you take the first tenth of it and give it to God, that's what God asks of you. It's very simple. And again, we don't have to guess. We don't have to just keep giving until we get what we want from our God. We give and God will give according to what he's going to give. Thou shalt truly tithe all the increase of thy seed. And that brings forth year, that, your, that the field brings forth year by year. Deuteronomy 14.22, tithe. Second thing he asked for us, uh, biblically speaking, and he asked for it throughout the Bible. I'll just give two verses. He asks you to give that tithe with a generous heart. That's what he asks. So you don't give it begrudgingly or because you have to. In fact, if you give your tithe and you have a sick heart about it, don't give the tithe. It's better to not be hypocritical with God. Like, remember, uh, who are the two people that tried to give their field proceeds to Peter, but they were lying about it? Ananias and Sapphira. They die. It was their field. They didn't have to give anything to the church. God doesn't want the money, if it doesn't come with a generous heart, what he wants is that heart. Give, give to everyone who asks of you, Luke 6.30. And from him who takes away your goods, do not ask for them back. This I put in there for Steph. If you loan something out to somebody, you don't expect it back. It's a gift. 
If they want to give it back to you, great, but don't borrow things out if you really expect to ever see them again. Ezekiel 44.30, the best of all for first fruits of any kind and sacrifice of any kind from all your sacrifices shall be the priest. Also you shall give the priest the first of your ground meal to cause a blessing to rest on your house. When you do this right, when you give that to God, he actually promises to bless your house. It's one of the only things where God asks for something and he promises to give something back in return. Third thing he asks is that we, we do what we do with humility. So anything we do, we do it in such a way that we don't do it to elevate ourselves above, above others. And we see that in Numbers too. Everybody gives the same gifts and nobody can elevate themselves above others. Right? So they give their tenth, they give it with a generous heart, they give it humbly. And, and just as a mirror verse in the New Testament, Matthew 6 is one I picked out. Matthew 6, verse 2. Therefore, when you do a charitable deed, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they might have glory from men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But when you do a charitable deed, do it not do it so that your left hand does not know what your right hand is doing. You know this verse, right? That your charitable deed may be in secret, and your father who sees in secret will himself reward you openly, because godly giving is always noticed by God, even when we think it's in secret. Godly giving always comes with a promise, and godly giving is, according to numbers, it's recorded, and it's kept track of. So when you do it, God honors it. The end of the chapter is now when Moses went into the tabernacle of meeting to speak with him, God, he heard the voice of one speaking from above the mercy seat that was on the ark of the testimony from between the two cherubim. Thus he spoke to him. So God's voice is actually emanating from right above the ark of the covenant in the Holy of Holies. And Moses hears him audibly. God accepts the sacrifice then God moves into their camp. This is the first time God speaks from the tabernacle. And that's the relevance of verse 88, is that the location of God has changed from the top of Mount Sinai to right in the middle of their camp. So now they're ready to travel, right? If we're going to move through life at all, we don't want God to just be in some other place. We want him right in the middle of our life. And one of the core ways of doing that is for these people to show what they're going to give to God. And then they do it. So what it goes to God. Um, Moses, as a leader, another perspective on verse 88. If you have a godly leader like Moses, look at what he does in this situation. He goes to God. He listens to God. He's in God's space. And he listens to him in mercy, on the law. And at that point, he knows God. And he's with and he knows God. Wouldn't it be wonderful if all godly leaders met those same criteria and that they were actually hearing from God and they would do what God says? So that's number seven. Not much when you're just blowing through it, I think, but hopefully those considerations add a little to it and inspire. Numbers eight, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to Aaron and say to him, when you arrange the lamps, the seven lamps shall give light in front of the lampstand. And Aaron did so. He arranged the lamps to face toward the front of the lampstand as the Lord commanded Moses. Okay, there's a lot more detail about the lighting back in Exodus 25. We already did that chapter. So you can always go back and re-listen to that if you want to. Common in Hebrew literature is that you get a general accounting of something 
and then you get a much more detailed accounting of something. And this is an example of that. Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2 is another good example of that. Genesis 1 is the general creation account, and then in Genesis 2 you get a much more detailed version uh, that kicks off. So Leviticus 24 explains what the lampstand is, they explain it, and now we get in a little more detail how it's to be arranged. Uh, verse 2 when it says you're going to arrange, uh, the word is ola in the Hebrew. This is really cool. It means to go up to or to rise to. So when you, uh, again, when you go up to the lamps, um, as though the lamps are not on our level, physically speaking, the lampstand was probably huge and they would have needed a little stepping stool to get up and put their lights on there too. So it's one of those incidental details that's interesting. Verse three, it says in front of, they make sure that the light lights up the room. It's not supposed to be hidden. It's supposed to be exhibited with the maximal degree of light or shining. Now this workmanship, verse four, of the lampstand was hammered gold. From its shaft to its flowers, it was hammered work. According to the pattern which the Lord had shown Moses, so he made the lampstand. Okay, when you, he mentions that the lampstand's hammered twice. So you think, okay, what could be in that? And, and I wouldn't put much into this, but something as beautiful as the lampstand needed to be hammered out. It wasn't cast in a mold. It wasn't done sloppy-like. It was done with exquisite craftsmanship. The gold calf that the Israelites made, they poured it into a mold. It was done quick, fast, and sloppy. But the work of God, when he does something, it's done meticulously. And that's pointed out here twice. Um, um, it says the pattern of the Lord according to the pattern which the Lord shown Moses. True worship is inspired by God. It's not a human creation. So when you see these implements and the Bible makes a big point of them being instructed by God or guided by God, it's an interesting way to look at how the church should look too. When we do things in the church, it should be inspired by God. Revelations 1.20 uses the same lampstand to represent the church itself, but the church doesn't make its own light. The lampstand doesn't make light. The lights have to be placed in the trays of the lampstand. And in the same way, the church doesn't make its own light, but the light of Jesus is held up and pointed in a certain direction by the lampstand. Um, people would see this work. I think some commentary says nobody gets to see this light except for the priests when they go in. I'm thinking this is a flap that covers the door, and every time a priest goes in or out, you'd see light shining from that tabernacle and emanating out. So when the priests go in the presence of God, the people see the light of God. And that's a pattern, and that's how that would work. <laughs> now the light's burning continually. All this activity that's going on happens in a continual way, um, and people would see it. It would be essential to their effort as a people. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the Levites from among the children of Israel and cleanse them ceremonially. Then you shall do to them, thus you shall do to them to cleanse them. Sprinkle water of purification on them, let them shave all their body like swimmers, and let them wash their clothes and so make themselves clean. <laughs> In other words, they're going to. Okay, so first of all, this is a dedication of the Levites, and you're thinking, We already dedicated the priests. The priests are not the Levites. Right? But the priests are Levites. The priests are the son of, sons of Aaron at this point. The Levites are all those other families, Merari, Kohath, and the Gershonites. So there's three groups of Levites. 
There's a fourth group that's just the sons of Aaron that would be the priests. So we've already dedicated the priests. Here we're dedicating back in Leviticus 8, chapters 8 and 9. But here we're dedicating the whole tribe of the Levites who are given to the priests to do the work and carry their stuff. And they're told to take a bath. Essentially, go take a bath. Um, get clean. For In Egyptian culture, to shave everything is a way to be clean. So it's a purification ritual. It's a way to kind of clean everything off. Hair would contain the sins of your past, perhaps. So you get a clean start, clean shave. Um, it means from among uh, the rest of the people, which it seems like then the Levites had already started to settle with the different 12 tribes. So we're going to see that when Israel gets founded, the Levites will settle cities in each of the regions of the 12 tribes of Israel. So they come from the tribes in these verses. It seems like then they're already starting to kind of minister to or, or take up residence with the tribes. Uh, so they take a bath. Verse 8, then let them take a young bull with its grain, off grain offering, which is from Leviticus 4, and fine flour mixed with oil, and you shall take another young bull as a sin offering. This is Leviticus chapter 5. And you shall bring the Levites before the tabernacle of meeting, and you shall gather together the whole congregation of the children of Israel. I think it's interesting how we now use Leviticus like a building block. In just all the time, it, they just incidentally say things throughout Numbers, like you should know what, what's in the law and what Leviticus is. And then they build on that knowledge. Um, to sprinkle water of purification. Uh, we know from Ezekiel 36, we're going to see this later, then I will sprinkle clean, wa clean water upon you and you shall be clean from all your filthiness, from all your idols, I will cleanse you. So this idea of sprinkled water, um, and later in chapter 19 of Numbers, we're going to see that they're going to mix that water with ashes um, from, from a red heifer. Um, so there's this idea that these, this water is a purification thing. It's where Catholics get the sprinkling of water or holy water on people. It is a tradition that goes through Judaic tradition and it's still part of Christian tradition. Uh, verse seven, to shave and clean like a newborn baby uh, is a ritual that symbolizes new life or new birth. And otherwise the Levites are going to be born again, which is where Jesus gets the language for born again when he starts to say it in his ministry. Um, that's what that's representing here. They're getting a new start. Uh, the other place where we see shaving is after a leper is healed. They're supposed to shave everything off and they start again like a newborn baby because babies don't have lots of hair. Some of them do, but not all. So they're born again. Verse 6 says to take the Levites, um, to cleanse them, to shave them with a washing. Um, verse 9 has the, them to bring the Levites before the people. And verse 10 says to bring the Levites before the Lord. It's interesting in verse 6, take, verse 9, bring, and verse 10, bring. The Levites didn't necessarily need to volunteer for this. They were being brought and taken for this dedication ceremony. So I don't know if that meant that some of them had to be brought by force. And we're going to see that the Kohathites rebel against this role they've been given at some point. Um, but it is, you know, just noticing that language here take it for what it's worth. It doesn't say anything about that, but it's kind of an interesting use of words that they have. Verse 10, so you shall bring the Levites before the Lord and the children of Israel shall lay their hands on the Levites uh, and, and Aaron shall offer the Levites before the Lord like a wave offering from the children of Israel that they may perform the work of the Lord. So the first thing with the wave offerings, remember they would hold up 
the the wave offering i don't think they actually held each human being up or this would have been an exhaustive kind of process um, but they do put in there in verse 10 it says they laid their hands on them so when they say like a wave offering they're not saying they actually lifted people into the air right they laid their hands on them and symbolically it's a wave offering it's like a wave offering um <laughs> And I think this is interesting too, and this might be why they had to take and bring the Levites. The word for lay on hands in the Hebrew is samaki yad. These are exactly the same words that we saw back in Leviticus 4.4 before they killed the bull. They're treating these Levites like a bull being offered. They bring them in, they take them, they offer them to the Lord, and then they're going to, remember, they press their hands into the bull as a transfer of sin between the animal and them, they're doing this to the Levites. And the Levites may have been thinking to themselves, are they about to slaughter us? Like, is that what's going on here? Because they're being dedicated. They probably wouldn't, but again, my imagination goes crazy on this. So they put their hands on them. We still do this in churches today. Um, and this is definitely one of the Protestant traditions. When we're going to bless somebody or consecrate someone, or set them off for ministry. Churches will even have people come out of the congregation to actually put their hands on the person to pray for them. And that there's an idea that there's a transfer that happens with physical touch. And that idea is still prevalent in the church today, and it's prevalent in Jewish tradition too. That that touch, that connection means something, especially in prayer and in dedication. So they lay their hands on them. In this case, it's not a transfer of sin. It's a transfer of blessing, right? And consecration. So verse 11, they offer the Levites. Uh, again, same word as an actual offering. They're actually giving these Levites to God. God's going to give them to the priesthood. In Ephesians 4, servants are given to do the work of the church. And I think this is an interesting kind of biblical concept that we see in both the Old and the New Testament. When people are going to serve God's kingdom, there are, there's, the niche, there's God's kingdom, all the people that want to follow the Lord. But there are some people that are set aside and given to the ministry, like, like, uh, like, um, like Zach's dad, right? And he's a pastor. He's given to that ministry. It's his life. And once he sets his hand to the plow, he's not supposed to look back. He's supposed to do it for the rest of his days. So when it says given in Ephesians 4, it's like it is right here in this chapter. They're given as equipment for the priest to be able to use. They're tools. And that's what they're giving their life for, that to be God's tool. And that's not a debasing idea. That's an elevating idea. It's okay to be humble. And that the last people are actually elevated to be the first in God's kingdom. This is an important role, and there's a whole ceremony here. So they're actually living sacrifices. Only with humans, you get to stay alive. And all of Israel is going to give them as an entire tribe to do the work of the Lord. So we're mixing church and state here considerably, right? This is a nation making a decision to serve the Lord. Verse 12, Then the Levites shall lay their hands on the heads of the young bulls, and you shall offer one as a sin offering, the other as a burnt offering to the Lord. We're going to give our whole life to you, and our being as sinners, we're going to give that to you too, Lord. And they give it. And again, as a living sacrifice, they can substitute something for their sin. And that's a key concept with God all the way along. And if you want to sub substitute something for an eternal sin, you should substitute something that's eternal to do that. Um, and it sets up the, the kind of the message of the good news. Verse 13, when you, and when you stand, the Levites before Aaron and his sons, 
and then offer them like a wave offering before they Lord, they give them to God. Thus you shall separate the Levites from among the children of Israel, and the Levites shall be mine. And after that, uh, after that, the Levites shall go into service in the tabernacle of meeting. So you shall cleanse them and offer them like a wave offering. I like that they go into service right away here. With God, it, it's not as much about the ceremony as it is about getting to work. You're dedicated to God, you start now. You don't wait, you don't give it a year. You start working right now. And for verse 16, for they who are wholly given to me from among the children of Israel, I've taken them for myself instead of all who open the womb. So what we're going to see here is a summary of the rationale behind this. And it's repeated. We've heard this before. The firstborn of all the children of Israel. For all the firstborn among the children of Israel are mine, both man and beast. On the day that I struck all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, I sanctified them to myself. I've taken the Levites instead of all the firstborn of the children of Israel, and I've given the Levites as a gift to Aaron and his sons from among the children of Israel to do the work for the children of Israel in the tabernacle of meeting and to make atonement for the children of Israel that there be no plague among the children of Israel when the children of Israel come near the sanctuary. Did you pick up on the fact that there were a lot of uses of the children of Israel over and over and over again? And then you start to think, wait a second, is there a pattern to this, this whole thing? And there is. What's interesting about these verses, um, well, and first, this is a rephrasing of an idea that we saw back in Numbers 3. Numbers 3 verses 40 through 51 said virtually the same thing. Only this one says it a little differently. It's organized differently. And if you look carefully, we once again get to see our friend, the chiastic form. Um, and it's balanced out. So in this case, um, we see this kind of balancing out of things. In fact, if you go all the way from this passage back to Numbers 3, and you look at everything we've done so far, you see very similar concepts coming in and right in the middle of all those concepts. And then you think, ah, oh, they wrote it this way. That's why it's not in chronological order. In the middle of this passage and the Numbers 3 passage, directly in the center is the Nazarite vow that's at the middle of all of this. And you think, oh, God's word is perfect in dimensions that we can't even understand when we read through it. And then people critique it like they know better or that they could do better in the writing than this. It's written specifically with detail, links, accounting of the relationship, their job, their role, and it's in chiastic form. And then this passage alone is in chiastic form too. So verse 19 is a run-on sentence. And if you take verses 16 through 18 and you balance it out with 19, it actually comes as a chiastic with similar ideas. He's going to take the children of Israel. He's going to take the children of Israel. The firstborn amongst the children of Israel, the firstborn amongst the children of Israel. Right in the middle is verse 18. I've taken the Levites instead of all the firstborn of the children of Israel. So you see this kind of balancing form in verses 16 through 19. You see the same form as this passage bookends another a, a section of Leviticus. And in the middle, you see these key points, these things that are there. The reason they did this is that in ancient script, they didn't have bold-faced text. They didn't have italics in the Hebrew. So they used this form in order to get you, the reader, to see these key ideas. What's the best thing about everything getting ready for the wilderness? The Nazarite vow, setting yourself apart, being different for God. What's the best thing or the best just, what's the key justification of all this? Because God owns you and he's taken you and he's taken you into his own. 
Another piece of this chiastic form is the whole point of this, it, practically speaking, is those little Jewish kids had to memorize this stuff. And this repetition of phrases like children of Israel is to help them memorize. It makes it easy so they can put it in their head. And you think of an entire nation of people where they're memorizing God's word. And they make that a priority as a culture. And they do this. So God affirms why and how this relationship is based. There's no secrets in God's word. There's no mystical knowledge. There's no secret truth that only if you buy this book for 1999, you can hear the secret mysteries of your relationship with God. None of that stuff in the word of God. It's all straightforward. It's all laid out. The rationale for it's right there. Um, there's nothing mystical or secret about any of this stuff. Again, separating it from almost every major world religion out there. It just becomes this distinct. Judaism is so different from everything else the world had. And you think, wow, this is incredible. So don't miss what God's intention is here. In the New Testament, you're probably already asking yourself, well, what's God's clear intention after Jesus? What is it we are supposed to get out of that? And it's really simple. And Romans 12, verse 1, lays it out for you. God's plan for you is right here. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. It's a reasonable reaction to what God's done for you. And don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Israelites are doing the same thing right now. They are being transformed through generosity from slaves in Egypt to conquerors in the holy in the promised land. And they're being transformed by the renewing of their mind, by the study and the obedience to God's word and giving themselves over to God. So how do you do these things? It's right here. You do God's work, right? I don't know where I got that idea from. I'm going to skip it. All right, this is a major step in God's progressive revelation. From Genesis 1-1 to here, this is a huge step. And you just read it and you're just thinking, oh, well, I already read that back in Numbers 3. But there's a bold face on this. This is a big deal. God has claimed people. He has substituted for their sins. And he has made it so they are his and he's going to put them to work how he pleases. This is not different from the New Testament covenant that he has with us. The substitute is Jesus. He wants you to give your heart generously, humbly, without putting yourself above other people, and he wants you to get to work for his kingdom. It's really simple, and it's nothing magical. And if you give your life to God in any way, shape, or form, even a tenth of it, God's going to record it, he's going to track it, and he's going to keep track of it for all of eternity because that's what's reasonable. It's the logical thing for God to do, and emotionally, it's the loving thing for God to do, and they match love and justice, mercy and peace, all coming together in one God. Oh, this is good stuff. Verse 20, then Moses and Aaron and all the congregation of Israel did to the Levites according to all that the Lord commanded Moses concerning the Levites. So the children of Israel did to them. By doing to them, it means they hauled them in to the tabernacle, laid hands on them and prayed for them. And the Levites purified themselves and they washed their clothes. And then Aaron presented them like a wave offering before the Lord. And Aaron made atonement for them to cleanse them. And after that, the Levites went in to do their work in the tabernacle of meeting before Aaron and his sons, as the Lord commanded Moses concerning the Levites, so they did to them. They didn't even get a night's sleep. 
they instantly started on God's work. This reminds me when Jesus calls the disciples and he says, come follow me, and they just drop their nets and follow him. There's no excuses in this relationship. If you say you're going to follow God, do it, do it now, don't wait. Let everything else drop in order to do that. Unless you're exhausted and you're already sleeping for the night, if Zach listens to this later, right? People choose to follow God. They do it. They do it instantly. And we see that again and again and again through the Bible. And God honors that. He loves it when people do that. And there's lots of work to do. There's gatekeepers, musicians, cleaners, tanners, bushers, bakers, hosts, house inspectors, doctors, judges. Remember all this from Leviticus? There's assistance to the priests, which they now just had added. There's maintenance. And if you're in the tribe of Merari, you're the moving truck. And this is what you do. So there's all this work that has to be done. Somebody has to sweep the tabernacle. These are the people that do that. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, which is sad for me, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who serves Christ in these things is acceptable to God and approved by men. Romans 14, verse 17. Then the Lord spoke to Moses back in our chapter, Numbers, verse 23. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, this is what pertains to the Levites from 25 years old and above, one may enter to perform service in the work of the tabernacle of meeting. And at age 50, they must cease performing this work and shall work no more. They may minister with their brethren in the tabernacle of meeting to attend to needs, but they themselves shall do no work. Thus you shall do to the Levites regarding their duties. Okay, this is the coolest passage of verses. This is really neat stuff. The word work in here, oh, I'll get to that in a second. Let's get to the age requirement. Um, the age requirement here is from age 25 to 50. They're going to work. That's a 25-year career. But if you remember back in Numbers 4, verse 47, those weren't their years, were they? Do you remember what the years were? 30 to 50. Very impressive, Mandy. Um, so apparently, there's a five-year apprenticeship period here. Getting to work means you're going to be working as someone's apprentice. So the electricians, you know, they got to serve under someone, learn how to do it. The cable people have to apprentice with people, um, and they have to do this here too. So there's apparently this training period that's there. What's interesting is that it's five years. Today we expect that, like, if I work here for two weeks, I should get my raise. I know everything at this point. And here it's like five years. No, this is how we sweep the temple. This is how we carry the board. And you're like, really? I got to study that for five years? Yeah. You're going to do it exactly according to how they want it done. But that's not the coolest part about this. There's very particular wording in verses 23 through 26. Very particular. Uh, they use a, f a few different words for the word work. And in the English, it's just work, 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 work. You see all those works in the, in the thing? In the Hebrew, it's nothing like that. And it takes on an entirely different meaning. The word work is translated in, in multiple ways here. Sava, which means war. Abad, which means serve. Sharat is in there. Shamir, which means to keep guard like a soldier. And Avoda, which means to do manual labor, to work with your hand. And all of these are mixed in there. And then, of course, Mishmeharef, uh, which is to keep or preserve something with an obligation. They're all mixed in here, and I'll kind of walk you through it. I'm not sure why in the English we softened the text on this. And I don't know, sometimes with translators, you don't know. We had the one with Bonnie's NIV translation where you're like, why would they add that? 
and try to make new meaning out of that verse when it just wasn't there. Here it's like they're taking away meaning by not translating these words as different words and just saying work, work, work. So for example, in verse 24, it says to perform service in the work. Um, that's actually the use of the word za. All of those words are just zava two times. And zava means to fight. It means to go to war, to wage war, to muster uh, in, in order to get ready for battle. In other words, when they get ready to go, they're going to enter into warfare or work and at the tent of God. To become a servant of God is to enter into spiritual warfare. And that's the phrasing here. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, this is what pertains to the Levites. From 25 years old and above, one may enter to war the war of the tabernacle. That's literally what that's translated as. But they soften it and just say to do some work in the tabernacle. But that's not what they're doing. They're doing spiritual war. And this world doesn't like that God's tabernacle is set up and organized accordingly. This is, uh, and again, let me point out the particularness of this here too. We've only seen that word one other time in the Bible so far, and that's Exodus 38.8. There were women who assembled to war in front of the tabernacle. That prayer warrior group that seems to have been sitting outside the tabernacle, this group of women, they were conducting war in front of that tabernacle, spiritual war. And now we have the second use of that term is right here in verse 24, these Levites that are going to perform the war of the tabernacle. And in context of the women, too, that means partially their jobs to pray. But they're entering into this battle. I think this is just an interesting image. I'm going to read those same verses, but I'm going to translate them into, I think, a little more accurate English. This is what pertains to the Levites. From 25 years old and above, one may enter to war the war labor of the tabernacle of meeting. And from ages 50 years, they must cease doing war and they shall not labor. They may serve with their brethren in the tabernacle of meeting to keep the guard of the tabernacle, but they themselves should do no labor. Thus you shall do to the Levites regarding their charge or their military duty. So to be a Levite, to sweep the floors, to clean the toilets, you know, to set up the wiring for the sound system, all of that is to do battle and be part of the army of God. It's amazing how God elevates these lowly tasks of hauling boards on your shoulders to being the war of God and to do the work of God. Because God doesn't need us to fight his battles. He wants us. And that's so impressive. And it makes you want to sing praise songs, right? Such a great image. So either they expected to be instantly attacked in this or God is talking about a spiritual warfare here. Their lives are going to be... this. They're not representative of something here. They are the soldiers that are in the tabernacle. So God's telling Israel that when they worship, that is their warfare. When they offer things to God in peace and joy and love, that is their battle. That is the strategy. Love the Lord and let God change the world through the tabernacle and through the church. That is it. Paul speaks like this all over the place, right? He uses this military language in a number of his letters. And he does it because he sees it right here. When he reads this in the Hebrew, he sees that the calling is a military calling. So Paul instantly keeps that. You'd think Paul's the genius that came up with it. He's just mirroring what he reads in the Old Testament. And he's using that same kind of language when he talks about the Christian walk. This is amazing. The real obedience to God and doing what God says, that is spiritual warfare. And we as humans, I think, want to add something to that. Like we should do more. 
We should be more militant. We should do more things. But what God asks of you is your reasonable service. Serve the Lord, love God, love your neighbor as yourself. It's really simple, right? But it's so hard to do it. So you have all these kinds of things. And different people react to that obedience to God in very different ways. And I think most of us have seen this. When you are obedient to God, the people that are faithless feel guilty. When you're obedient to God, the the faith wimpy people, they start to get jealous of you. When you're really obedient to God, the people that are faithful and prideful get indignant. Who do you think you are? And the people that are faithful get joy and fellowship when they're around other people that are trying to obey God too. I'm just trying to serve the Lord. And those people build deep fellowship in the church. Different kinds of people react to obedience to God in very different ways. Why aren't you having a drink with us? Because I'm taking a Nazarite vow and I'm backing off on the grape juice for a little while. I'm trying to be obedient to the Lord. People react to those very little things in very different ways. And some of you have already experienced that too. Like, I want to get to Bible study tonight. Why do you need to get to Bible study? And people in our life will react to things like, because I'm trying to be obedient to the Lord and I'm trying to learn the word. Like, what's wrong with that? But people react to those very little acts of faith, those reasonable services. They react to them in very different ways. And the Bible tells us through other places, so I won't get too deep into it right now, gives us detailed accounts of what that reaction is and who those people are and how we can know and discern the different people in our life and if they're helping us move towards God or if they're not based on how they react to little things like that. It's really interesting. So three pieces of really good news. And I'm going to wrap up with these three thoughts. And I'm going to give you, if you have your pens and pencils ready, I'm going to give you a ton of Bible verses here. And I'm not going to wait for you to look them up. I'm just going to read them. Um, But three pieces of really good news that comes out of Numbers 8. Good news number one, God fights our battles. There's no expectation that these Levites have to come up with a military strategy. None. They go to work and they are, in, they are doing the labor of serving God and they are doing a war labor when they do it. And God fights our battles. Deuteronomy 21, when you go out to battle against your enemies and see horses and chariots and people more numerous than you, don't be afraid of them. For the Lord your God is with you, you who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Second Chronicles 20:17. you will not need to fight this battle. Position yourselves, stand firm, Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord who is with you, O Judah and Jerusalem. Don't fear or be dismayed. Tomorrow you go out against them, for the Lord is with you. Man. First Chronicles 28, verse 20. Then David said to Solomon, his son, Be strong and courageous and do it. Do not be afraid and do not be dismayed, for the Lord God, even my God, is with you. He will not leave you or forsake you until all the work or the service of the house of the Lord is finished. And that work that they're doing there, we know is that warfare work. You do what you're supposed to do and God will be with you. Good news number two, the battle's already won. And I hope this is a reminder for everybody in the room. The battle's already been won. So what do you have to be afraid of? John 16, verse 33, as I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I've overcome the world. Past tense. Jesus has already done it. Man. First John uh, chapter 5, verse 3, because everyone who has been fathered by God conquers the world. If you're the children of Israel, if you're the children of God, God's already conquered the world. This is the conquering power that has conquered the world, our faith. 
Now who is the person who has conquered the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? That military language keeps coming up in the Bible, and it's because we do battle, we come into conflict and contrast with people that are of the world. And it's not that we want to. We can love them with our whole heart, but it's because they don't want to obey God. So there will be points of resistance. But don't worry about it. Jesus is there and he's already conquered. Good news number three. <laughs> Anytime there's a battle in our life or a struggle in our life, if we prepare ourselves like the Israelites prepared for the wilderness, we have the armor that pretty much makes the fighting not a big deal in the first place. It's not like we have a chance of losing when we prepare ourselves for these situations. Paul makes this point in depth when he talks about the armor of God in Romans 13, 12, 2 Corinthians 6, 7, and Ephesians 6, the big armor of God passage. It's what he's saying. And to not armor up is stupid, right? If you're going to take on the work of God and you don't put on the armor of God, you're an idiot. You're going out into situations where the world will chew you up through the fiery darts and everything else that comes at you if you're not doing those things that Paul said are really clearly. So you think about peace, righteousness, the word of God, the truth of the spirit. If those things aren't active in your life because you haven't prepared, then you're going to get eaten up in a battle that's already been won, which is pointless. It's like being the lemming that walks out on the field when the battle's already over and the enemy's already held up a flag, but there's still a couple people shooting on the lines and you're just putting yourself in harm's way. God has said, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 16, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 16, as God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore come out from them. So by the way, that's a quote of the Old Testament. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Don't worry about it. Anytime there's a battle, if you look at what you're supposed to do and do it, you're in good shape. You are of God, little children, and have overcome them because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. The good news God fights our battles. We don't have to fight them. The good news is that Christ has already won the battle. It's a past tense kind of conflict. And the other good news is we're just God's kids. If we just pick up the lumber and carry it like the Marari people, we're doing what we're supposed to do. And God will use that and grow that and multiply that because it's what God does. Problem is there are so few people that say, I just want to serve the Lord. There's lots of people that read the book and they don't do it. And this is devastating in America right now. There are so many people that are readers of the word, but they're not doers of the word. And the harvest is plentiful and the workers are few and God's looking for more workers. And Jesus was looking for more workers when he said that too. So my prayer for each of you is you find something this week that you can do for the kingdom and you just do it and you get it done for the kingdom. And you do it with joy in your heart and you do it with humility, not to make yourself better, than someone else in the church, but you do it with humility, generosity, and just the idea that you get to work right away. In fact, you might even not want to go to sleep tonight until you can identify what that is. Like you don't even get a chance to go to bed. Just get to work and stop waiting for it. Um, and they're like, Dickers, now you just made me feel all guilty before I went to bed. Don't do that. There is no guilt and no condemnation in Christ Jesus. God puts something in your heart, you do it. You don't wait on it. You get it done. Amen.
Dear Lord, we just love you and we thank you for your word. We thank you that in the book of Numbers, you've put all these things here for our teaching and for our reproof, that we can study them, we can unpack them. Uh, Lord, I just keep coming back to that idea that the tribe of Judah had no prince, that you reserved that title for the Prince of Peace, uh, and that the king would come from Judah and that he was not to be named until you arrived. Uh, and Lord, we just praise you. We praise the name of Jesus, Yeshua. Um, Lord, that we can lift you up and we can celebrate what you've given and what you've blessed us with. Lord, thank you for putting a spirit in us that's greater than the world, for giving us the same Holy Spirit that Paul had, that Billy Graham had, uh, that, 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 uh, that the great uh, champions of our faith have had through the centuries. Lord, you put that in us too. Um, that we come before you, we set ourselves apart, we live holy so that we can be used for your reasonable service. Lord, we give you our lives. They're yours to take. You can do what you want with them. Um, Lord, I pray for anyone looking for how to serve and where to serve, that you make that as clear as you did to the Levites. You show us the work that you have for us. And Lord, if all you have for us is to be blessed, to study your word, to prepare that we can take those five years of apprenticeship uh, to, to work our way into your service, Lord. Show us where to do that and how to do that, Lord. Just bless us in those efforts. Lord, I pray you anoint and bless everyone's work this week. Um, help the people that need jobs and are looking for jobs to find them, Mandy and Emily. I just pray that you're with them in that process, that you help them find that dutiful work that you want them to do, uh, that you put us where you want us. Um, Lord, I just pray for... Um, those of us that have work, that we do it with a good heart. We do it with a generous and a happy spirit. Uh, we, we give to our employers everything they've paid for and maybe a little bit more. Uh, be with Zach especially, Lord. Just bless him as he's uh, straining and working and, and sweating uh, to give his employers everything they've paid for and maybe a little bit more. And bless him in that. May it just bring joy to his heart and may you bless him. May you help him balance work with home and work with his faith uh, so that those things are, are not a burden, Lord, but they're easy because he's put on the armor. Um, Lord, I just pray you bless everyone in this group here tonight. Give them safe travels and a wonderful week. May you show your presence alive and well in their life as they go through this week. In Jesus' name, amen. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.